Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Is a trifecta of super bubbles bursting? Well, that's what legendary investor quote legendary investor. I'm not sure if that's self-proclaimed or, or CNBC or who, who anointed him that that title, but legendary investor Jerry Grantham, and he does manage billions of dollars, uh, he is saying that the super bubble is near. And, and we're actually in the, in, the, in the beginning innings of it, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And then the SEC is saying to advisors, and I use that term loosely, advisors, which also encompasses brokers, which, in my opinion, are not advisors because they're conflicted, conflicts of interest. But they're saying you need to clean up your act and you need to clean it up. And then we're going to talk about a related topic of sponsored content, because that's also very important. But first, I've got to do the disclaimers. Welcome, Welcome to Your Money Radio, folks. We're going to Talk to you about all kinds of topics, and this podcast is for general topics, investment ideas, for you to research. It is educational and entertainment purposes only, and not meant to be individual investment advice. If you need or want individual investment advice, contact your own advisor or reach out directly to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. You can just go to revereasset.com, or you can email me. It's real easy. Dan, that's me, Dan Stewart. Dan at revereasset.com and you can pose any questions. We will also get to the mailbag, which we got a few questions and, and comments from, from listeners that we will address. And then we will also get into uh, Michael Ramos's um, sector, the leading sector that he's been researching, that the uh, fundamentals of supply demand picture is very, very bullish for this sector. So. Um, you, you really want to definitely listen to the end and hear that part because that could be a, a, a very strong sector going forward and going forward for a while. All right, so let's get into it right away. First, let's talk about the SEC is really coming after um, um, advisors uh, on commissions, bonuses, gifts, and other incentives. And they're taking a much more aggressive stance and they're, cl- they're saying that both best interest for broker-dealers and the fiduciary standard, that's us for IRAs, which fiduciary means we always have to put the investor's interest first and we don't work on commissions or no kickbacks, nothing like that. Um, 
are all both both of these are under the Investment Advisor Act of 1940 and are drawn from fiduciary key fiduciary principles that include the obligation to act in the retail investor's best interest and not to place our own interest ahead of investors. The problem is if you're working on commissions, how do you determine that? How do you, how do you know uh, I'm offering you a commission product based on your best interest? It's really suitable for you and and otherwise now, here's the problem. Those same products now can be commission free. Now they offer annuities and life insurance and all that stuff with with commission that are fee-based only. So how can you justify the commission products anymore? That's a very good question. Um, um, you also don't hear about those because they don't pay big commission. <laughs> so, so nobody likes them. Convenient. That, that's your answer right there. Um, um, but anyway, they are talking about, uh, they, the SEC expects to disclose the facts out there of any conflicts of interest, and at a minimum, uh, th th you need to attempt to mitigate to the greatest extent as possible. The problem I have is if you're working on commissions, how do you mitigate that? that that's very tough. Yeah. And, and look, it's not that as a broker you can't do the right thing and you can't be honest. I'm not saying that. There are good brokers out there. Problem is, as an investor, life's too short. I don't want to have to look over my shoulder. And I don't want to have to wonder, is it the guy's anniversary and he's trying to buy his wife a nice gift? Or his <laughs> kids, or her college, kids are going to college and she needs to generate a little extra revenue? Yes. Or is it really in the best interest? Uh, I can tell you here at Revere, and they want you to line the interest together. I can tell you here at Revere, mm -hmm. uh, uh, all of my money and all of Don's money are actually in the strategies that we preach. And we're actually getting the exact same trade at the exact same time and, and price as the, as the clients. Mm. So there are no conflicts. In fact, we're so we're, we're conflicted with the clients. We're right I'm in right. there with them. We are intertwined. Part of the team. Okay. Yeah. If they're yeah. doing bad, we're doing bad. If they're doing well, we're doing well. I mean, we are on the same team. Yes. So anyway, so I even hear these fiduciaries. Hey, hey Dan. Yeah. Dan, speak, speaking of anniversaries, this week was my seventh year anniversary with Revere. And oh. I, I didn't get the, the company catalog to pick my gift out of. Oh, I'm sorry. We don't do company catalogs. We don't do glossy brochures. That's the brokerage firms and the insurance companies. They have the glossy brochure. <laughs> Here, listen, this is why I can't stand the industry. Right. I, I, right. I got I to gotta say this. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the problem and, with and, the and, industry. Because we have clients go, well, can you, or prospects, you know, people that want to come on board and they go, can you please send me like, you know, some like brochures about your Sure. I go, you know, maybe we need to think about that and, and put something together. But up till now, because look, in the 90s, I had to be on the dark side. Uh -huh. I had to have my brokerage license. That's the way you did I it. Think it started somewhere. And then as soon as they came out with this fee only thing, mm -hmm. I, I did that. I was one of the first ones in Texas to do that. And I could give the, the bird to the to the brokerage firms because they tried <laughs> to keep you captive. Yeah. Right. And it, it was a it was just a much it's a freer, easier deal. And there were no conflicts. Um. Um, hey Dan, this is about me, not about the client. Well, 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 anniversary uh, gift. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so anyway, let me finish this though. Right. So every brochure <laughs> I knew from the brokerage firm had had little Johnny grandson, uh, grandma and grandpa pushing little Johnny on a swing mm -hmm. on the park bench, or. The older couple in retirement right. are walking hand in hand, barefoot on the beach. It looks like an ad for pharmaceuticals. Hey, every every inch, anyway. 
So, but Don, I will get yeah. you a. I will get you a, a. I do still have your kiss sock. Did I send those to you? No, got you, those. No, you don't. You gave you. Yeah, I got those. Okay, so They're now I got to right get you another kiss. Like I got to get you another kiss something. I got to get you a kiss something. <laughs> I can appreciate that you. Look, oh, look, look there, there. He's got them. He keeps them right there. They are. Yeah. For those, of, for, cold, for, for those, for those, for those, handy. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, Don is a huge kiss fan. He loves kiss. Look at that. So, what do they, so, they say on the bottom, Don? The uh, one. The bottom, it says, good luck sock. Yeah. Good, <laughs> okay. Must good be luck brand. sock. So, right. okay. I thought it was going to be something cheeky or fun. A- anyway, speaking. Yes. Speak, speaking. So, but along those same lines. So, they're really trying to get people. They're really. What they're doing is they're really trying to force brokers into the fiduciary model that fee-based only advise. And a lot of people are going that way. A lot of brokers are going that way, as they should. I think the old way of doing business is, well, the old way of doing business, there's a better way to do it. So, like I said, life's too short. Anyway, uh, very quickly, I'm just going to hit the highlights of this. So, um, 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 they want you to clean up as much as possible, and they want you to be free of conflicts of interest. Well, you can't be free if you're a broker. Right. So, if your advisor has a Series 7 or Series 6, there's conflicts of interest. If they just have a Series 65, which is fee-based only, and nothing else, then, then, then you're okay. Mm. All right. Now, along those lines, and by the way, all of these articles I put in the show notes, yes. so you can go read them on these yourself. The you don't have to listen scroll to down some great looking guy on the radio telling yeah. you all this. Right. Um, <laughs> um, the second thing is be wary of sponsored content. And so it's talking about, you know, advisors really wanting to get in front of these financial advisors and trying to advertise through them and to per- they'll actually ask to per- we get it all the time we get people saying hey would you can we put a uh, 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 can we pay you to put an article on your website or do you and they also tease us with continuing education they go oh you'll get continuing education you'll get four hours of credit for your license to can and they want you to and they and they you take this little seminar and it's really about how to hawk annuities Right. It's really how to sell life insurance or or this mutual fund, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, uh, so on this financial magazines, it's talking about how mutual funds, if if say the cost of the mutual fund is 0.65%, the, the expense ratio, and they just bring in uh, $20 million, it's like $120,000 to their bottom line. So they got a big incentive to try to get you to put them in, the, the, to, to get the advisor to use those specific funds. And, you know, that's no secret, but you always got to look because whenever you're watching CNBC, look, Zach's, Zach's research, you think of them as being an independent buy-side researcher, but I get emails from them all the time with the sponsored content, a sponsored uh, person through Zach that's using the Zach's name. But, but so Zach is sending my email list, my, my email to them and sell, and I'm getting an email from these people saying we're a Zach sponsored, you know, advertiser can you want to watch this yeah um whenever you read a financial magazine finance you know a, a an article always look at who the advisors are in the magazine mm-hmm. and that'll give you your answer of what the slant is what they're trying to sell i can tell you at revere we don't pay we don't i try i try to avoid advertising as much as possible although i might start doing some just to get the word out about revere but I don't let people like pay to put articles on our website. I don't. I've got mutual funds wanting to take me to lunch 
all the time because they want me to put our clients in those funds. Folks, right. we don't use mutual funds unless we have to in 401k. Yeah. Okay. We use ETFs and stocks. We don't get any. And by the way, they used to call them soft dollars. So they've outlawed that, thank God. Mm. But it used to be soft dollars was where when trades were like $8 a trade yeah. or $4 a trade, if you Schwab or Fidelity, they both offered it, they would pay you a dollar back rebate for every trade you sent their way. Right? So you, you get a dollar per trade. Yeah, yeah. So say it's $5, I'd get a dollar back. And so if you're doing 200 clients, you know, and you're doing act, that's Hey-o, now, yeah. now for soft dollars, you had to use it for research and for research to help the client. So that's quote, a the soft dollars are considered a client asset of the client. So you can't pay your electric bill with it, but I can pay like sure. for Don's MarketSmith software package because right. yeah, he uses yeah. it to manage the money. We can use it for, you know, that kind of stuff where I can use it to pay an analyst but I can't use it to, you know, pay just regular bills. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, now the clients got to come in or the auditors have to come in and, and, and audit and see what I'm actually using the soft dollars for. Huh. It just creates a conflict. I've never accepted soft dollars, even when it was offered to me when it was legal, because I thought it was not ethical. And mm-hmm. the regulators agreed with me about five years ago. Welcome to the party. And they said, you know, soft dollars, we're not doing this anymore. Right. Now these free trades, these trade away that all the brokers or brokerage firms are doing now, now they're not required to give you best execution. I think I'd rather pay four ninety five or three ninety five and know that I'm getting best execution than wonder whether I saved two dollars or paid twenty dollars more on a trade for a lousy fill. They all got an but, angle. Right. So look, let's just be tra- if we know we're transparent. Then we don't have to worry about anything, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what we pride ourselves in doing. Speaking of transparent, clients love the fact that Don does a daily market insight video at night. Every day. Because he's doing an analogy, uh, uh, analogy, anthology. What's the word I'm looking for, Don? Analysis. Uh, no, anthology of a, 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 a history of what we're doing in the actual portfolio. What's the word I'm looking for, Don? I guess it is anthology. I think it is anthology. <laughs> I think I got that right. Speak of the devil? It's definitely not misperception. Yeah, yes, no, you're right on the money. Misconfusion. Misconfusion was your word from a couple weeks ago. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, we got that on tape, don't we? Yeah, we we sure did. All right, anyway, um, so (laughs) all I'm saying is the regulators are trying to clean it up. They're kind of a decade late in the game, in my opinion, but I mean, I'm at least cheering them on for the fact that they're giving it an A for effort. Yeah. and then also, again, look at the look. Anytime you get research, figure out whether it's buy side or sell side. Sell side means it represents the brokerage firms or the investment banks or the insurance company, mm-hmm. right? Buy side means it's only geared toward the investor. There's no conflicts. They don't have something to try to sell you, okay? Mm-hmm. Except their unbiased advice. Right. It revere you're only paying us for our brain. We don't have products. We don't. We're not selling mutual funds. Or anything, and we don't get any soft dollars. We don't get any kickbacks. No 12B1 fees. None of that stuff. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Now I want to talk about uh, this Jerry Grantham's article, this trifecta of the super bubbles. Jeremy. 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 <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy Grantham. What did I say? Jerry. 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 Yeah. Jeremiah. I was, just, right. I was just looking him up in the thumbnail, and I figured, <laughs> right. who is this guy? Anyway, yeah. what's so funny, and I thought this was odd, and Don caught this right away. I sent the article to him. I said, what would you think? He goes, 
I can't believe 2008's not in there. <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing. So his super bubbles bursting were 1929, 2000, and 2021. And I'm thinking, where's COVID in 2020? I guess that wasn't a super bubble, or whether that's a little bit early and we're just starting this cycle. Mm-hmm. And I think he's also talking about the overall global, the, the economy. Because yeah. 1929 stock market burst helped per- per- precipitate the Great Depression and the economic downturn of a decade, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 2000 the, was a tech wreck, and we went into a deep recession for about a couple of years, a couple, three years. Um, 2021 is what he's talking about now and into now, and he's talking about it started in the summer, and now he talked about this bounce, this relief rally we got a couple weeks ago yeah. and, or a couple months ago, and now it's starting to soften. He thinks we're headed for the next leg down. And he gives his reasoning. And he's talking about the food, the energy shortages, the supply chain, the Ukraine war, Russia, sure. and how Europe now is beholding to Russia, well, they all, they've been, for natural gas and energy, mm-hmm. and Russia's putting the screws to them, right? Yeah. And so the EU is really going down into a deep recession. It looks bad. I mean, that to me, that's one of the biggest uh, uh, black, it's not even a black swan, it's actually pretty obvious, yeah. but, but that's one of the biggest things. And then, um, um, and he's also talking about Chinese real estate, which I've talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. So to me, the biggest, the biggest uh, variables that could really hurt us are Chinese real estate getting contagion and happen globally. Uh, the EU uh, uh, going into a deep recession or even depression. They're mm-hmm. even using the D word over there. And us, the Fed, overshooting the mark and tightening too much and hurting our real estate market. So whether you think uh, Jeremy Grantham, Grantham is right or not, you know, it really doesn't matter. No. Because uh, here at Revere, we follow the chart. So if things get ugly, uh, we can always um, um, hedge or short or, you know, even go net short, short real estate. So, Don, I wanted to get your thoughts on how, you, if, if it turns out to be true and we do start getting lower, What's the plan? I get people ask me all the time, what's the plan for, everybody doesn't worry about a plan so much if it's going up because, you know, all boats rise and raising tide. What is your plan if you, if it, if it goes down? So Don, you want to, you want to kind of highlight a few things that you would do? Sure. There, there are a couple of uh, real estate ETFs that we keep our eye on. First of all, real estate uh, VNQ is a Vanguard real estate ETF. The one that's part of the S&P 500 is XLRE. They both peaked uh, in mid-August at their 200-day moving average and were rejected very similar to the way the indexes were. If you look at a relative strength chart, which I have up now, and you can see, real estate has kind of been acting. Uh, the fact that this uh, RS line is basically flat going sideways real estate has been staying in line with the s&p 500 a little bit sometimes a little bit outperforming sometimes underperforming but it's pretty much going in line with the s&p 500 uh we've got you can see i have an alert set here on xlre to see if it could get back above the 50-day moving average uh and there are several etfs that we're looking at as a way to short real estate three of them in particular uh the first one is rek this is a one-time uh, short ETF. 
uh, ProShares Short Real Estate, REK, a two times is SRS, two times short real estate, and a three time is DRV. So uh, we, we will take our, sim our signals, not from these charts, but from the actual real estate ETF charts themselves. There are, there are a couple other real estate charts too, but we're primarily focused on VNQ uh, and XLRE. And if we get bounces up into a resistance area, uh, we will possibly consider shorting uh, if it rolls over at the resistance area. But right now, I'm fine with what uh, the S&P 500 is doing, so there's no reason to focus in on real estate if it's acting the same as the S&P 500. It's if it significantly starts to underperform uh, that will take that. And, and that's kind of very similar to what we've been talking about in-house with Europe also. Um, the Europe ETF that we're watching is VGK, the long Vanguard Europe ETF. ETF. Uh, it recently made lows just yesterday on 9.1. Um, not quite lows. It was a little bit lower. It looks like on 7.14. But note the lagging relative strength versus the S&P 500 by Europe. No surprise considering what's going on over there with their energy bills. Uh, so this is really would probably be the first thing that we would want to short before real estate. Uh, got some alerts set there if we go up into the 50 or the 21-day moving average. And the way to short it is with EPV. This is a three times short Europe ETF. You can see it had a big gap up yesterday, then reversed, very similar to what happened, the inverse of what happened in our uh, indexes here in the US, basically just went down too far too fast. It's time for a bounce. In this case, it's time for the inverses to pull back. So if we play it, uh, EPV is most likely the way we would short Europe. Uh, really a mess over there with the economy. The politicians have completely screwed the populace and the small businesses uh, by being completely reliant on Russian natural gas. The price of it is just completely out of control and it's wrecking the economy over there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, we can do those same methodologies with our own indexes too. In other words, if our own indexes run up against resistance, roll over and start rolling over, you could actually short some of the U.S. markets as well, but normally you'd want to pick the weakest shorts. Mm. So if Europe's actually weaker than the U.S., you could actually, you would want to short Europe, not 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 the U.S. Anyway, those are just some yeah, ideas. Yeah, because, because of the, we, we just got off of our, uh, our short on the S&P 500 earlier this week when we got too extended, uh, and then we went long yesterday and covered the long into this 50-day moving average today. I, I don't mean cover the long, took our profits with the long because that's a very big resistance area, this 50-day moving average. And it's also a key Fibonacci level on the bounce from this recent sell-off from Jackson Hole to yesterday's low. It's a 38.2% bounce. That's a very typical Fib uh, retrace level. And it's today's high as of right now, so 4018. So if we get above 4018 before the end of the day, Maybe this bounce is a little bit stronger than we were going to give it credit for, but for now we've taken our profits in that SSO long that we took yesterday. Nobody ever died broke going uh, taking profits. All right. <laughs> Ain't that so, so anyway, the point is you should have a plan on the way up and you should have a plan on the way down. You should have a plan for either direction in the market. The market can do move either way, obviously, and it can even go sideways for a little while, although that sideways market's don't last very long historically, but, but 
you got to have be supple enough in your mind that the market can go up or down, regardless of your emotions or feelings. And regardless of the economy, most people don't separate Main Street and Wall Street. And while there's some long-term correlations with how good the economy's doing and earnings and the stock market, in the very short term, the correlations break down. They're not really good. They don't correlate real well. So the market can actually rally on bad news or sell off on good news. And a lot, some of that's to do with the Fed because the weaker the news, the, more the, the Fed can be more accommodative. So that's bullish for the market. And if the economic data is strong, the Fed can raise rates, and that's kind of bearish for stocks. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out because you should have a plan for either direction. And at Revere, uh, we've got a plan, especially a plan for the big, big pullbacks or bear markets because that's, that's really important. All right. So the next topic, you know, so we do a mailbag. I've been starting doing this a few weeks ago, and we want to do a mailbag. and bring up uh, uh, things that, that, that people sent us in uh, so that we can take questions and, and, and answer them. Okay, so this, is a, this was a sent to, hi Don, greetings from Canada. I've been watching your daily recap video ever since you were featured on Richard Moglin's Market Chat. By the way, folks, if you've not seen Don's interview with uh, Richard Moglin from Trader Lion, it is a great interview and it's, it's over an hour long and it is full of gold nuggets on portfolio management. Richard Moglin interviews some of the best investors and traders in the world uh, and all the time. And, and Don did one about a month. If you need the link, just reach out to me and I'll send you the link. But it, 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 it is a very, very good interview. Anyway, he said, You're, I've been watching your daily uh, recap videos ever since you were featured on Richard Moglin's Market Chat, which is probably one of my favorite interviews he's done. Kudos, Don. Hey, I absolutely love that. I, I love the way you guys manage risk and your overall approach to investing. My question is regarding entry techniques. I know that Revere enters positions incrementally every one fourth ATR, that stands for average true range, uh, one fourth ATR move following the initial purchase. Is this because you will move the stock too much if you enter at once? Or is there some hidden benefit to this approach? Let's say the moving, uh, moving the market was not an issue. Would you still incrementally enter or would you take the entire position at once? It kind of reminds me of how Livermore bought. Livermore is a famous trader from the early 1900s. How Livermore bought with his pro, he called them probes, with his probes and then adding to the winners. I've asked Mark Minervini. He's a very famous current, probably the most famous trader in the world right now. I've asked Mark Minervini how he enters positions and he takes his entry position at once and then scales out quickly as momentum comes in. That means he takes the position, the whole thing at once and quickly starts taking profits off the table. If you have time to reply, I'm interested to hear your take on the two different approaches. I personally lean toward the incremental approach, but need to work on adding the position faster as not to run up the average purchase price too high. In other words, wait too long. As, aside from, as an aside, thank you for the wealth of information you guys provide for free uh, through your website and your YouTube page. It is incredibly generous and contains many nuggets of information. Enjoy the long weekend, and hopefully SSO position makes a nice move with Solid Jobs better. Report tomorrow. It did, and we did. All right. And this is classic. This is classic Don right here. 
<laughs> just like a surgeon, just take care of it. He goes, hi, so-and-so. I just don't think it's prudent to plunge all at once. We prefer, prefer the Livermore slash O'Neill approach to incremental investment. Thank you for reaching out and for the kind words. So, so Don, <laughs> so Don, can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Remember, this is radio, Don. Uh, sure, Dan. <laughs> um, we we don't like to plunge uh, all at once. We don't think it's prudent. We prefer the uh, Livermore William O'Neill approach of uh, going in incrementally. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> perfect. <laughs> okay, so so. Why do no, you that, I, I, honestly, honestly, first of all, so Minervini usually takes like mid teen size uh, chunks. We we can't manage portfolios the way an individual trader can manage their portfolios. It's just from a risk standpoint, unacceptable if you're a, a fiduciary of of uh, people's people's money. So uh, we're not going to take posi positions that big, first of all. Uh, and we can't take them that big because he's absolutely correct. We would move the market. We need to, we limit the liquidity uh, to a hundred million dollars in daily dollar volume for something that we're going to go into. And that's with taking an initial 2% position. So there's no possible way we could, we could take a, a significantly bigger position unless we want to up our liquidity. So, I mean, ideally, we, we want to work our way up to an 8% position. If we wanted to go 8% immediately, we would have to go up to $400 million in daily uh, dollar liquidity. And um, that's going to would just eliminate too many stocks. So uh, it's, it's just more prudent. It's more conservative. But if you get in and you get in within, you know, as he mentioned, the quarter to a half ATR on your subsequent buys, it's just about the same as going in all at once. But you're guaranteeing that you've got uh some gains in the in that position after your initial buy. I, I can't tell you how many times my initial two percent position gets stopped out. And if I'd have taken an eighteen percent position, that's just not a hit to the portfolio that I'm that I'm willing to take. Or even the initial eight percent position. So uh because we we're conservative, um we're aggressively conservative if that makes sense. When things are working we wanna we wanna push it, uh but not not go overboard. So going 2%, 2%, 2%, 2% as something that we buy is working. And then raising our stop incrementally is uh, very much preferred and uh, certainly smooths the equity curve. And by the way, so we dial up and down the risk. So the investor's risk tolerance is, is important, but the risk in the market, the sector, the stock itself is much more important. And we actually had a, a, a discussion with a guy. We did a go-to meeting, Don and I did with a, a new a, a guy that really is, is probably going to come on board. And he was asking these questions about position sizing and, you know, ATR and this stuff. And one thing that Don does that's very prudent and it, it is that he, we manage position size using the volatility in the eight, the average true range of the stock, how much the stock moves so that we're quote standardizing each position so that if we get stopped out, it will have no more than a what negative point, 4% effect on the portfolio. 0.2? Yeah, on the initial on the initial buy 2%. Oh, on the initial we're buy. raising the stops. Yeah, right. And, and then yeah. we raise the stops. So subsequently we don't want to take a 4% or a 0.4% hit. Well, right. If so subsequent buys start to reverse, we'll we'll peel out of it. Yeah, and and so so it's very important to adjust. So when people go what's your what's your average position size? Well, 
a full position might be 5% in a good market or eight in Don's case, right? Right. But, but you might adjust that slightly down for a more volatile stock, a less volatile stock. You may increase that a little bit. So it, the, right. the, it's not just, just like you hear these guys say, Oh, I put stop losses across the board at 5%. Well, on a volatile stock, just a couple, two days trading regular volume, you, you or volatility, you'll get stopped out of that. Right. Versus a non, so you've got to adjust your where your alerts are set. We don't use hard stops. Hard stops are the the market makers love hard stops and they rape retail investors that use hard stops because they know where the stops are. There's an old adage on Wall Street: "There's always the stops." Okay, so we actually have alert set. So when alert gets hit, then we go look at the position, and say yes, we want to sell. No, we don't. Or how we're going to sell it? Are we going to you know do it in a couple different pieces or do it all at once? Uh, uh, point being that you've got to adjust that, and that makes it it makes it easier to manage the overall risk of the total portfolio because it's not just about the individual positions; it's about the correlation of the individual positions to each other within the portfolio. So you've got the in, managing the individual position, and then you've got managing the total portfolio with all of the positions. And that's the, 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 the biggest mistake I see most investors make. These people can learn how to manage individual positions. They can learn the rules, the buy and sell rules, but then they don't know how to construct the total portfolio. That's the biggest lack. All right. So that was pretty good. All right. So this is the next one. Um, and so this says, uh, I'm a newbie to Revere. Thanks, Don, for being on Richard Moglin. I enjoy the content. Uh, on YouTube each day slash week. For you newbies, you should address the following. First, your firm does a lot of trading in and out. That's great for retirement money. It would seem to be a mess with taxes in taxable accounts. Can you please explain to the audience? Second, please look at IBD paper, page A17 this week. Each week they publish IBD ETF strategy. The data is based on QQQ. Data since 2006, before the Great Recession, Till the current date, IBD strategy is up 369% using Q's. Uh, buy and hold NASDAQ is up 588%. Seems like the IBD experts underperformed. Please explain to your audience, uh, perhaps a, a project for Michael. Okay, so I'm going to take the second one first, and then we're going to talk about the, the first one second. So the, the second one is... I have no idea you'll have to ask IBD why they're grossly underperforming because we're not IBD. And the people doing that IBD strategy uh, may not be using, I mean, I have no idea. I don't right. know. We're not underperforming. We're doing very well. So I can't, I can't, I mean, that's like asking somebody why did, you know. Um, now, the other thing is, can IBD is based on can slim principles, the IBD paper and the research and the data, but not everything on IBD is can slim. And so you got to be, you got to be careful of that. And that, that IBD ETF strategy is, is just using ETFs only just ETFs. It's not using the individual stocks, which is really what can slim is all about. So I can't really address that. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I can tell you that, uh, uh, um, IBD also license out their uh, product for use, and there's an actually a nifty fifty IBD ETF where it's from a private 
company that up on the East Coast that manages, but they've licensed out the IBD name to use it, and their returns are terrible. But they use 50 stocks. Well, if you're going to buy 50 stocks, you might as well buy an ETF. So I guess my answer would be that uh, this uh, QQQ strategy with ETFs apparently doesn't have either good enough or quick enough sell discipline, or they don't get in early enough. I can tell you that through that time on the NASDAQ, you had major drawdowns of 40% or more a couple of times. And are you willing to ride that out? That's a value judgment that the investor is going to have to answer for themselves. So we don't believe in buying, just buying and holding and hoping for the best. So now for the second or the first question, which is very pertinent to Revere. So obviously if you've got IRA or retirement money, then you don't have to worry about taxes and, and everything's good. So you're, so you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck, but that's true anyway. But as a famous hedge fund manager told me when I was up in New York visiting, a uh, famous hedge fund manager, friend of the families, is in my mid-90s. He told me, Dan, when it's time to sell, it's time to sell. When it's time to buy, it's time to buy. Regardless of the tax, you can always do your tax planning at the end of the year. Okay? So you can either give it back to the market in a correction or bear market, or you can pay the tax and control your own destiny. I will say that you will pay a lot less in taxes than you think, especially if you do tax planning at the end of the year, you book any material losses that are unrealized that you don't have. Now, I'm not going to go book a $50 loss, but going into November, if I've got a stock that we're holding that's got a material loss with a couple thousand dollars, I will book that because I know that you'll be able to offset future gains with it, no question about it. There's no question about it. And by the way, there's also a confusion about a wash sale, that you lose that wash sale indefinitely. No, no, no. It's just until you close that same position the second time, you then you combine those two. So you never lose a wash sale. It's just deferred until you sell that same security. But I can tell you during 2020, during COVID, right, the bear COVID market, in March, uh, the, at the bottom, in March 23rd, we were down single digit and the market was down 25%, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's smoother. So if you're buying and holding, is that better? Then toward, and then as we started getting back in, we actually did much better than the market by the end of the year. So even paying the tax, you, will, you had a better return after tax, okay? Yes. Now, there'll be times that the tax will put your return less than the S&P, and I tell people this all the time. Sometimes we're going to be a, a little ahead of the S&P. Sometimes we'll be behind it. But I don't get too jazzed up, so we'll jockey back and forth, and it really depends on the volatility of the market. I just know you're not going to get 2,008 with us because we're not going to write it down. You're not going to have 20, 25, 30, 35% or more drawdowns. Right. And it makes it a smoother ride, so it makes it easier to stay the course. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, old, the old saying, uh, the two things in life are certain, death and taxes. So, yes, you may have to pay some tax, but B, you'll be able to control your own destiny. You won't set your hair on fire because your portfolio went down 30% a month or two months, and you won't second question yourself. So even if there is some tax liability, I personally think it's a better way to do it. Don't fear taxes 
more than drawdowns. I'm more afraid of a 30% drawdown because that's much more uncertain in the timing of that unless I'm really watching it mm-hmm. than, than, actually, than actually buying and holding just to get the long-term gains. Now, there's a report called Sequence of Returns Studies. There's studies called Sequence of Returns that show, and it's based on retirement money, about how much you would have in retirement money, but the same is true with a taxable account trying to hold for long-term gains. And that study shows that if you, you know, you hear the story that you put in a thousand bucks a month for, you know, from the time you're 25 to 65, you have a million dollar pot of gold at the end of the deal, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's heard that. What they don't tell you is all of the lion's share of the gains are made in the last two or three years of the compounding. So say you have $10,000 in there and you get uh, 8% return, that's only 800 bucks, big deal. But if you got half a million in there, that's $40,000 in one year. A million dollars, it's 80000 So the big gain, the majority of all the gains happen in the last three years of that compounding. So if you, if you sold out in 1999, you had twice as much money to retire than if you did it right after the tech wreck. Or certainly in 2008 at the bottom or 2009 than if you sold out in 2007 before, right? And so the same thing is true in taxable accounts. Now you're making it random of how, if you're going to force yourself to have a holding period of over a year, you may be giving up a lot of gains in order just to not to pay the tax. Now, if I've got something that we held, so we will, so only in hindsight do we look back and go, wow, that held long enough that it act, that stock acted right long enough that we held it for a year. So for instance, in COVID, we got out of the way, moved heavy into cash. And then right after March, when the Fed came out and said, we're putting, we're going to spend trillions of dollars and we're going to put a, a floor under this, um, the market started rallying and we held Apple and Tesla. And, you know, we were able to hold a few stocks for long-term capital gains, but we didn't go that going in. It's got to act right. So if you want to do that, then you're putting constraints on managing risk. So I would rather have manage risk without constraints than be afraid of paying taxes with constraints because I may take a shellacking on my portfolio. Mm. So I think that's the, the best answer I could give. Don, you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I hear people talk all the time about harvesting losses, about being a positive. If you're harvesting losses, it means you let the loss get out of control in the first place. Uh, all of our we, we talk extensively about uh, how you know, we don't nip losses in the bud. We don't let them get out of control. And, uh, you know, harvesting losses as a badge of honor is a misnomer. It means you didn't have proper risk control in the first place. Okay, so, so I'd like to point that out. So when I said tax planning, yeah. we don't really have to do much tax planning at the end of the year because we've already booked, as, as soon as a stock breaks down, we're going to sell it for a three, five, six, eight percent loss. We always try to keep them to single digit. So you've already booked those losses. You've already accrued those. Yes. Okay. And in fact, Don's even said this. He, he looks at his win loss all the time. And it literally is about 50 50. In fact, it's like 48 and a half winners versus 51 and a half losers, right? Mm-hmm. But the low losers are all single digit. And the winners, you'll have some single digit and low double-digit gainers that offset all the losses, and then you have a handful of stocks that go up 30, 40, 80, even sometimes 100%, 
obviously, if we knew which ones those were, we would just buy those. But it's really kind of the law of large. If it works out, fine. If it does, and you'll know within a week or two whether that stock's going to work out. Yeah. It's going to work out from your buy point, from a proper buy point. It's going to work out immediately, or it's not going to work out. So the old adage, you cull your losses, you cut your losses quick, and you let your winners run. And that's exactly what it is. So I think it's an easier ride. It's, it's much better to manage risk. So the conversation I don't mind having with a client is, we did well, you booked some profits, you're going to have to pay a little tax. The, comp, the, the conversation I'm not going to have with a client is, well, you don't have to pay any taxes this year, but your portfolio is down 25%. I'm not going to do that. I refuse to do And I'm not going to do it with my money either. Yeah. So remember, this is your money. Yes. That's why we named the podcast Your Money. Your Money. So we protect your money and we manage risk first and let the returns take care of themselves. All right. I think that's pretty good. Uh, no more comments. You're good on that, Don? I'm good. All right. All right. So now the much anticipating. Highly anticipated. Michael Ramos's leading sector analysis. Michael, what do you got this week that looks good for a probably a longer term trend? Okay. So. I was thinking about doing this uh, discussion today a little differently from the way I've been doing it um, the last uh, few weeks, where I really uh, dive deep into the uh, fundamentals of the uh, sector itself. Um, I'll give a brief description on the on the narrative of of why it's um, a theme going forward. But um, the way that I invest um, that that makes the most sense for me is I do. Uh, I do definitely need to have a a theme or a story that that is compelling, but that's only that's only a part of it. the The main part of it is is then do the technicals align with that story? Um, do the charts support it? And then so I sort of do a a top down approach, finding different industries and sectors that that make sense from a long term theme. And then I do a bottom-up approach as to how I find individual companies within those sectors and within those industry groups that then um, I can allocate money to comfortably, knowing that that the fundamentals support that that uh, that technical action on the charts. So what I'm going to talk about today is lithium. Um, as I'm sure most people at this point know, lithium is is extremely important um, for renewable energy and for electricity storage. Uh, what lithium is used for is um, in, the, in the green revolution, a big issue with, with solar energy and um, wind energy and electric vehicles was how do you, you can, you can create that energy, you can generate it uh, through solar panels, but then what do you do with that energy once you have it? If you have a day where there's no sun or there's a lot of rain or there's not enough wind, if you're not producing that electricity, then that renewable source of energy is kind of useless. So where lithium comes into play is that now it's solving the problem and it's it's advanced significantly um, into storing and harnessing that energy. So you can generate uh, solar energy during the day when, when the sun's shining bright, and then you can actually store that energy in batteries that use lithium ions that are extremely good at... Um, not only storing that energy, but they're also reusable, so they can they can last a long time. Um, 
and that's a that's a critical component to uh making renewable energy um more efficient and usable in in the future um and then in terms of uh where it's produced uh 52 percent of lithium is produced in australia uh 25 percent of it's produced in chile and 90 percent of the uh the reserves are in four countries 90 percent of the lithium reserves are in uh First, uh, Chile has the largest reserves in the world. Then number two is Australia, followed by number three, Argentina, and four, China. And um, the, the the use cases and and um, the the fundamental thesis behind lithium being a strong performer and a and a, a big um, sector in the future is there, but. I, I think it is important to mention a couple headwinds that that could um, make it difficult um, in I guess the the shorter to near term and then potentially moving into the long term, which is um, so the biggest threat to the industry is drought. And currently globally, we are experiencing drought. Um, there's, uh, for example, um, um, 65% of, uh, of the water in Atacama, Chile, which has the largest reserves in the world, goes towards the uh, production of, of lithium. So if, they, if wow. they start running out of water, it's going to be extremely difficult to, to produce that, that lithium because these lithium mines require, um, they're, they're very water intensive. Uh, yep. I'll give you some, some stats on this. Uh, 500,000 gallons of water go into extracting one ton of lithium. So what that comes out to is um, just to to make the calculation, um, I guess, um, a little more understandable. It's about two and a half gallons of water per cell phone. Uh, that's how much water goes into the uh, the mining of lithium. Now, once you've mined that lithium, then um, reusing it, obviously, you're you're not going to use as much water once you have it mined. Um, and if we get into um, then another industry that could could perform well and um, see a lot of use cases would be how you recycle that lithium so that you don't have to continuously mine it once you already have it out of the earth, um, making it making it more reusable in these batteries because they do have a long life. They are reusable, but then over the long term, they do eventually degrade and then and then it's figuring out, okay, is it possible to, to reclaim that lithium or do you have to throw it out? Um, and then, um, so, I want to mention two companies and, and we'll dive into the charts and the technicals in just a second. I'll give a little fundamental um, explanation for uh, what they do and, and why they're, they're best positioned, in, in my opinion, going forward. And the first one is, is Livent, uh, ticker LTHM. And Livent is, is going to be your, your pure play on lithium. It, it's the most, um, it's pretty much all they do is, is mining lithium. Um, they produce lithium carbonate in Argentina, um, and it is among the world's lowest cost lithium sources. Um, that, can, can you show that chart, capacity. please? There you go. There we go. Thank you. Um, so they're, ex they're expanding their production capacity uh, from 20,000 metric tons in 2020 to 100,000 by 2030. Um, they have flexibility to produce lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. And the difference is lithium hydroxide is higher quality and a higher priced product, but it's a little more difficult to make. Um, they're planning to build a lithium recycling plant, which then goes into that um, re reclaiming that used lithium. And then the negatives uh, for that company, because uh, I don't want to just give you all the positives. There are some negatives as well that you have to consider. 
um, they did purchase an operation in Quebec where the previous owner filed for bankruptcy. And a common theme in the lithium mining industry is that a lot of uh, producers, um, usually independent producers, some public uh, public uh, companies do end up going bankrupt because the expenses are too high or there's issues with water or environmental um, sanctions, certain, certain things. So there are regulatory concerns as well as um, just overall um, business concerns. And then you've got the geopolitical risk in, in Argentina, which is always a concern. Argentina is an extremely unstable country, very unstable economy. So you, you do take in a significant geopolitical uh, risk there. Um, and then the second one is um, Albemarle, ticker ALB. And they are the uh, world's largest producer of lithium, where they, they generate most of their profits from lithium mining but that's not all they do. They produce lithium in Chile, the United States and Australia. And their uh, Chilean operation is one of the lowest cost sources in the industry. Um, in 2021, they produced 88,000 metric tons and they expect over 450,000 tons over the next decade. So they're really ramping up production and expecting uh, the, the, the lithium industry to grow significantly. Um, the difference between Albemarle and, and LTHM is that Albemarle is not a pure play on lithium. They also produce some. They're the second world's second largest producer of uh, bromine, or bromine, which is uh, a chemical used in, in flame retardants for electronics. So um, in, in these, these big uh, warehouses where they have servers for cloud computing and automobile electronics, you need um, bromine to, to uh, prevent, prevent fires. Um, and then Albemarle is also a top producer of um, catalysts used in oil refining and petrochemical production. So what these catalysts do is that um, they speed up the processing of or the process of converting heavy oil into valuable uh, distillable products. But they're actually um, considering um, either spinning that off or selling that part of the, the business to, to focus more on the bromine and the, uh, the lithium. And while we're on the uh, the list, so so that's that's half of what I do. Once I, I find the story, I've done the research. It's interesting to me. At the bottom, you can see these pre-tax margins. The margins are increasing, so the, the business is in a good state. So then, what I do is I actually look into the the charts and the technicals and see, okay, where would I get in? Where would I get out if the trade doesn't work? Um, the, does the market see what I'm seeing? I don't um, I don't want to be early to a party. I don't want to be the first one there. I'd rather mm -hmm. wait until there's already a party going on and then arrive and show up and have fun instead of doing all the setup and then the breakdown. I just want to go and enjoy myself. So that that's how that's how I look at the uh the, the stocks. It's is there a party going on? Can I just hop in and have fun? Or am I gonna to have to do a lot of legwork at the beginning until the market uh catches on to this story? Or am I just dead wrong and there's a reason why the market's not involved? So um if you look, if you look here at the um, at the EPS on the left, they've got big uh, big forwards earning estimates. Um, so that that's um, that's definitely something you want to see. Um, they are owned by a significant amount of funds, so there is a strong institutional sponsorship. Um, and and then I'll sh uh, so here on the industry and sector, you can see um, or sorry, owners and funds. You can see here they've got one um, IBD mutual fund index, which is one of the uh, funds that IBD tracks as sort of the best performing funds historically. 
Um, and then as you see that sponsorship uh, year over year, it's or quarter over quarter over the last two years, it's just been increasing um, every every quarter, um, except for March 22, it dipped a little bit, but I mean, there, there's always other reasons why that could happen, but the trend is definitely um, increasing sponsorship. Um, now, in terms of the, the technicals, um, what I don't like about the chart and what I'd like to see before entering this position is that um, directly off the bottom there, you can see back in uh, early July, uh, from, from that bottom to the, to the top and the failed breakout end of August, it had a really sharp move. And, and usually those moves, it did tighten up a little bit early August around that eight exponential moving average. And then it held above the 21 EMA. But it was a really quick move and it just went straight into breakout, came back down, retested the pivot, and then tried to break out again. But that breakout wasn't on, it was on below average volume. Uh, you want to see a minimum of, on average, 40% volume on those breakouts. And the volume pattern just wasn't there. And now you've seen actually on, on the way back down, the, the, the sell volume has been higher than that, that breakout volume. So that is a little concerning. Um, it does look like a failed breakout. Um, so the, the handle here, it's formed kind of a cup and handle. Um, that, that's what it says on IBD, but the handle is um, extremely, it's a very deep handle. Usually you want to see handles um, a lot tighter and um, up in the, at least the, the upper half of the, uh, the cup. And here it came down almost to the lows of the cup. So that's not perfect either. Um, so I personally would give it more time to tighten up. Maybe it holds around this pivot area. Um, you see a decrease in volume. Um, hangs tight, gets back above that 21 exponential moving average, then above the ADME and the 50-day moving average catches up. And then you see that 200-day start to curl up as well once it's uh, like living above that for, for, uh, for an extended period. And then once it tightens up, then when you see that big volume on the breakout, then it could be, um, it could be viable. Um, also, an issue that is um, a headwind for these lithium stocks is that if you pull up a LIT, which is the lithium ETF. So the lithium ETF is is in a bear market. It, it's consolidating that move lower, but it's um, you see the last uh, the last five days it's been big um, sell volume. It's below the 50-day moving average, below the 200, below all um, key moving averages, and the relative strength is now weakening. So. As long as that lithium ETF, there are a few names that could stand out and do well. But if the industry is is suffering from headwinds, it's it's going to be difficult. Um, as they say, a, a a trout can't swim up a waterfall. And when you've got a a waterfall of of overhead resistance and headwinds in the industry, it's going to be hard to um to to find the few companies that work. And even if they do, they're going to be probably held down. So that is something to keep an eye on. Um, and then going back to LTHM, LTHM, I I like the chart more than than ALB. I think it's it's more constructive. And if I had to pick between the two, I, I do prefer prefer LTHM as well because it is um, a pure play on lithium. Um, as you can see here, it's it's formed a uh, a sort of base on base pattern where it's a cup followed by another cup. So it came up to that pivot high tried to break out, couldn't retest it, formed another cup. And now it's formed a pretty nice handle end of August. It broke out of there. It had the volume, but 
as you can see here, it was trying to break out while the market was um, coming down from that 200-day moving average, uh, trending lower. So it, it's going to be very, very hard to buy breakouts. Um, you don't typically want to buy a breakout when um, when we're in a bear market or when the market's correcting. Uh, the breakouts work best in a in a bull market. Um, so that's that's probably why that breakout failed. But it's come down now. It was holding that ADMA for, for a few days, and then it broke down, and it's now found support at that 21 EMA. So that chart is still constructive. Um, it still looks good. It's also got the fundamentals, those big earnings estimates going forwards. Um, the PE44 is good because it shows that um, that whenever you see a, a, a PE that, that's uh, like above 20 or 30, I mean, it depends on the industry, but a higher PE in, in a growth story is actually good because it shows that you're not the only one that's seeing this. The market actually um, appreciates the story and is valuing it highly because they also see that growth. So that's um, that's something good. Then at the bottom, you can see these margins are expanding tremendously. Um, you had 8% margins in the in, in the quarter of September 30th up to 40.5 in this most recent quarter. So you've got the sales growth, you've got huge earnings growth, and you've got margins expanding. Um, and then you've also, um, if you look at the owners and funds, what I like more about LTHM versus Albemarle is um, it's got it's got fewer overall funds, but it's got more of the uh, the IBD um, tracked uh, like outperforming funds. So I, I like to be in uh, in good company, and and here um, LTHM is in better company than than Albemarle. And the chart is is holding up a lot tighter and it's more constructive. So that would be the one that I would be most interested in getting involved in. And um, if it can tighten up here, if the market does uh, bounce and and it can break out of this uh, new consolidation handle that it's forming um, above that $35 level, I mean, really, really above 33. But then if you want to play it extra safe above 35 would be on 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 significant volume would be a. Uh, would be a good entry, and then you can manage risk uh, below that that thirty three dollar pivot. Um, if it comes back into the base, then you can you can sell it and take a take a minimal loss. So that's how that's how I'd be playing these names. All right. Well, that's that, that's so, that's a that's a great that's a great deep dive in it, and it it definitely echoes something that we say here all the time. It's not the chart that makes a stock double; it's the story behind the chart. And Michael diving into these two stocks and comparing and contrasting their uh, their pros and their cons. Uh, when we have that and we have the conviction in the stock and we know that we've done our due diligence uh, and that the fundamental story, they have the N in CanSlim, which is something new. Elon Musk said in his conference call at the end of July that processing lithium is a license to print money. Uh, <laughs> These stocks are in that uh, enter, uh, in that area. I'm surprised that the LIT ETF looks as bad as it does, but I think there's a, there's a lot more broad uh, companies in there, similar to Albemarle, that have are not pure lithium plays. They have uh, other chemical uh, angles to them, so to speak. But LTHM clearly the leader in that group. Yeah, okay. LIT. Um, so LIT is lithium and battery technology. So so there's a lot of battery uh, companies that are significantly underperforming the market that are in that ETF. And then the the last thing I want to mention about conviction is the reason why I do this fundamental research um, and and need to really have a lot of conviction and a compelling story 
is because that's that's really the only way you're not going to get shaken out of the stock. If you're just buying purely based on technicals, like here, for example, LTHM, if you've done a deep dive, you understand the industry, you know what you're buying into on that break of the ADMA where it found support at the 21. If you weren't really convinced, you bought it, you're not sure pulling back into that pivot, you're not going to have the conviction to sit through that. Maybe you would have just sold at the ADMA and it could reverse and go higher. And I mean, this is just one example, but there's many times that stocks do shake out and it's that conviction and that understanding of what the company does that keeps you involved and prevents you from, from losing on to uh, or, or getting rid of a winning position. So the, the, the and, and even conviction if, and even is, if you is, do get yeah. rid of it, yeah, if price breaks down and you do get into it, like this formed a nice base, this is a failed breakout, but what did it do? Formed just another base right next to it, as you mentioned. Uh, and you already did the research, so you know the conviction is there when it sets up again and, and represents a proper entry and then is supported on its pullback. Uh, you've already got the knowledge behind it, knowing that the industry, uh, the demand for the product is there. So uh, again, it's not the chart that makes a stock double, it's the story behind the chart. Yeah, and, and then and, one and, last thing, can, can, oh, sorry? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, last thing, conviction also, what you need to be careful about with conviction is, um, is it can be dangerous as well because it's very difficult once you've done your research and you do have a lot of conviction when the technicals start breaking down you may say no like the, the market's wrong it'll recover um that's where you also need to be super flexible and and recognize that you could easily be wrong and you just need to wait for for when you've got the chart in your favor as well conviction is one thing to keep you in but if the technicals break down and it's time to get out you you have to get out it doesn't matter how much conviction you have doesn't matter what you think. So, so that's right. In, in the legal system, a conviction can get you incarcerated. So <laughs> don't don't find yourself in financial <laughs> prison with uh, with a stock that you held too long. Yeah, remember, you only sell on the technicals if it breaks down. You can always get back in. You're only one trade from getting back in. So Tesla's a great example. Tesla's the best electric electric car manufacturer and the best run, the best in the world. It's a leading stock. Normally, we've owned it probably what four or five times in the past couple of years it doesn't but but when it starts to break down you gotta you gotta let it go you know Kathy Wood is just getting clobbered this year and she just had the biggest outflows I think since COVID since March COVID but you know if you're buying and holding going back to that guy's email if you're buying and holding and these leading stocks are breaking down you need to get out of the way people don't realize leading stocks the reason they're called leading stocks is they lead on the way up but they also lead on the way down. So leading stock in a bear market will lose on average 72% of its value. Are you ready to ride that down? That's why you don't buy and hold. And that's why you don't worry about taxes. Strategy trumps taxes. Um, one other thing I want to make a, a quick point out, uh, uh, kind of just a bigger picture, 10,000 bird's eye view on what Michael was saying, because Michael did a huge deep dive he, he sent me like five, four or five articles. By the way, they're all posted. You can read them. And there's some good good and bad in there, some negatives, you know, like how it's not that environmentally green, whatever. But right now, California just declared a, a new law that by 2035, every car sold in California must be electric. You can't do gas anymore. The European Parliament just passed that same thing. Two day, that's the third biggest auto market in the world. Just two days, they put the bill forward two days ago, and if the EU passes it, 
all of a sudden that's going to put such a demand on electric vehicles that some analysts are saying that we only have about 20% of the lithium and, and these rare metals, cobalt, and there are a few others, necessary to produce that. So the supply is not nearly as much as demand. And what happens when you have a strong demand and a short supply? Price goes up. That's why the long-term fundamentals are strong at this point, and the story is strong, and the geopolitical is strong. Now, right now, the price is weak, so you just wait for your entry, right? And, and by the way, one more thing, a, a little shout-out to Uncle Tony. In this case, Uncle Tony, the uh, lithium ETF, LIT, is probably a little diversified a little bit, and you'd want to try to take more individual position names rather than doing the lithium ETF because it might be a little too diversified, at least right now. Now, if it, it firms up and the other sectors, the related sectors are firming up, then it might be fine. Um, all right. Anything else, guys, on the on the lithium? We hit that pretty well. Yeah, nicely done. Yeah, that's good. Good job, Michael. Thank you. All right. Well, folks, now let's get into the markets. What is what are uh, actions Revere is taking? And Don, what are you going to be looking in going into the week, going into next week, really? Well, going into next week, uh, this reaction today at this um, this key area. So we, I drew up some fibs this morning. We when we we took this SSO position yesterday. Uh, when we bounced off this key 3,900 area. I showed this on the 60-minute chart uh, in last night's video. It was a very obvious place uh, to stop going down. It has provided support and resistance several times throughout uh, this year. And you can see we broke out above it here uh, back in July. We came back in July, tested it, and it held, and then we went higher. So that makes this 3,900 a very strong support area. And this is the first time that we revisited it yesterday. Uh, so it was a very low risk entry coming in, uh, being able to take that bounce, uh, buying that bounce off of there. But it was not something we were planning on sticking with. It was a, a what we call a tactical move. And the tactical move was to see uh, what happens when we get up to this 50-day uh, moving average. And this 50-day moving average also corresponds with, uh, let's go back to, let's go to a 30-minute chart here. Uh, this high, this is the Jerome Powell speech high. This is the Jerome Powell speech low. The high to the low of this, uh, when you pick, you can pick a high and a low off of a time frame, and you can generate what's called a Fibonacci set. The 38.2 is a very key level when you're looking at Fibonacci retracement. So the Fibonacci retracement on the S&P 500 today was 4018. So we got up to 4018, which also corresponded with that 4020 area, which was the 50-day uh, moving average. So anytime you see a double level of resistance right there, it's a strong possibility the first time that it's getting visited that it's going to fail. Uh, so we took our profits in, in two uh, phases today into there, and it just so happened that the high of the day was 4018, which is within a couple of cents of what that 38.2% uh, FIB was and also the 50-day moving average. Exact same thing with the NASDAQ 100. We weren't in this, but the 38.2% retracement from the Jackson Hole high to yesterday's low corresponds within a couple of cents to the 38.2 retracement of today's high. And now we're peeling back 
uh, in both uh, cases off of this level, you can see we've faded. Uh, we touched that, faded, tried to get back up through it again and faded. Uh, and now we're coming down toward uh, near two thirds of the lows of the day after we gapped up this morning. So right now our expectations, they don't always play out like this, but we thought we we weighed the risk and the reward. It's all about probabilities. The probability was that this was a low here. The probability was that this was going to be a resistance area. And we put our trades on and uh, fortunately for us, the, the probabilities uh, worked out for us in our favor. And if they don't work out, the risk to reward is there that we're going to take a very small loss. And uh, in this case, we were lucky to lock in the gains in, uh, this morning from what we took yesterday afternoon. So that's really what we're looking at for next week is what happens with relative to yesterday's lows, Thursday's lows, they're very key, and relative to what happens when we come in if we revisit again, this 50-day moving average area, which correspond with today's highs. So those are going to be the two reference points for next week is today's highs, Friday's highs, and Thursday's lows. And if we resolve one way or the other, that's going to dictate uh, our next action. All right. Well, listen, folks, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send them to revereasset.com in the top right-hand button. They can just hit the subscribe button. Put their name and email address in there. I promise you we won't spam them or, or hassle them. And we certainly won't sell their uh, information to sponsored content. Uh, and you can, or you can email any of us at dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, or michael at revereasset.com. And you can always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Be sure to watch Don's 21 over 21 market insight video this evening, Friday. Um, um, if you're getting this email, if you're getting, if you got this podcast via your email on Saturday morning, then go to yes, go to revere asset and go to Don's big show. It's called the big show every Friday evening um, from yesterday. So if you go to our YouTube channel, just go to revere, just type in revere asset and you can hit the subscribe button there and you'll get an alert. As soon as Zach posts this podcast, Normally it's at one ish, two ish, you know, mid Friday uh, day. But if you don't, if you're not subscribed to YouTube, then you got to wait. You either got to check our website all the time, or you got to go to um, um, wait till this or or it gets sent out in the email on Saturday morning. Uh, but anyway, that's that's really a good one. And it, it, the market insight video keeps you up to date with moves and things that we're actually doing in real time in the portfolio folks have a great weekend stay safe and we'll talk to you next week on your money barring any misconfusion or extrogenous events
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.